Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 1, Hot Fuzz. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, just the general format of the show is that each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, whose horror status is debatable, and we look at the creator's intent, the audience reception, and the content of the media itself, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. And if you agree with our takes, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror's a diverse genre, and all are welcome. And before we get into the movie for this episode, we're going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe, take it away. All right. Well, so we're talking about Hot Fuzz this week, uh, which uh, probably most of you don't know. that This was actually like the very first episode that we attempted to record way back at the beginning of season one. Uh, but we had some technical difficulties and uh, we we lost it. So this is our kind of our last episode that we're returning to. So with that in mind, my question uh, for this episode was what other piece of lost media do you wish would resurface or some something that was canceled, a movie that didn't that was announced but didn't come through or a book uh, video game, TV show, any of that type of thing. Okay, someone else is going to have to go first because I, per usual, cannot decide. Proceed. Oh, I, I can start us off. Uh, for me, there's a bunch of stuff, but one of the biggest things, um, or one of the things that I cared the most about has been um, the Half-Life video game series. So there's the original game, there's Half-Life 2, and then there's Episode 1 and 2. And then they announced that they were going to finish the the whole series off with Episode 3. But then it nothing happened with it for years, and then they eventually officially canceled it. And that was that's really was really disheartening. And we've uh, you know all of us Half-Life fans have been waiting years years and years for something else to come out. And there's been other projects that have kind of come up but uh also have gotten canceled or didn't come to fruition there was a game that was going to be called the borealis which is also a half-life thing and one that was going to be called raven home that also didn't end up um, end up happening so i am excited to hopefully see more stuff come from half-life they finally did get around to releasing a game called half-life alex but it was only for vr so yeah but but that did seem to revitalize the half-life i guess story a little bit and hopefully they've said they're gonna be coming out with other stuff however it's now been two years since alex came out and still no firm word on what's next so i hope to hear from about that soon (laughs) but yeah that's mine one of the bigger things that i care about okay uh I have a few things that I wanted to mention. So one of them is uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. If anybody's heard of that, there was a documentary about it in 2013. Basically, it was a there was a director Alejandro Jodorowsky, and I guess he was commissioned to. And I'm probably butchering that name pronunciation. He was commissioned to kind of write or direct a new Dune movie. 
and there's like all these like concept art and ideas for how it was going to look and how it was going to feel and it was uh it looked really interesting so if anybody ever wants to watch that documentary it's called Jodorowsky's Dune if you're a fan of Dune that's one uh, the other is, if anybody's a fan of the Diablo franchise, uh, you may know that Diablo 1 and 2 feel very different than Diablo 3. Originally, there was a Diablo 3 that was being made and was even had like playable levels and things like that that was made by the original Blizzard North team that made Diablo 2, and it felt a lot darker and it felt a lot more like Diablo, not like the ultimate version of Diablo 3 that we did get, which was redesigned from the top down, basically after Blizzard, after Blizzard decided to get rid of the entire Blizzard North team and fire everybody on the project. So that's another one. And then in the same vein, they were developing a Diablo 4 that was supposed to become like a third-person game similar to like the Dark Souls franchise. And that got really far into development before Blizzard Activision decided that it was a pile of garbage and they needed to cancel that also. So those are a few things that uh, were in production, didn't get finished, that I wish I could have seen at some point. I don't have interesting answers for this question. All mine are video games that I played as a child that I can't find anymore. Um, The first (laughs) one I figured out... I figured out what it was called. I could not for the life of me figure out what it was called, but it was installed on Windows XP computers back when I was a wee lass. It's called Fate. Has anybody ever played the game Fate? You play as a little person and you have like a dog or a cat. It's basically a dungeon crawler. Um, It's not actually Lost Media. I just couldn't think of the name, but it's a great game. I recommend it. The second one is called Reader Rabbit. It's my first video game I ever played as a child. I remember that one. Yeah, I I cannot find it anywhere online or even like there's vague traces that it exists. I know it exists because people are affirming it that it does, but I can't figure <laughs> out how to get it or like watch it. Um, but it basically teaches you how to read. And the third one is a game that used to be on Facebook, like Farmville. Remember, remember Farmville? Farmville has its own website now, but the game that I'm thinking of is called Cafe World. And I used to play that for hours as a child. And, well, I wasn't supposed to be on Facebook. But, you know, who doesn't lie about their age as a child? But it's gone now. Or as an adult. So sad. True. (laughs) So those are my found media. I'm sure there's many more that I'm not thinking of, but they're all just lost games. How did you get past the age clicker when you're creating a Facebook account? That's high security. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, they ask you. You can't just lie. (laughs) It's the internet. You can't lie. That's one of the things I always think is so ridiculous about so many websites. And I understand it's just kind of their way of getting past liability with it. But they're just like, are you 18? Like any kid who's under 18 ever approached that and was like, oh, I'm not. I better say no. (laughs) Right. And if you're a kid out there that's done that, hey, good for you. Good for you. You you know, your <laughs> medal's definitely in the mail. <laughs> but also, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. So. 
Yeah, you right. shouldn't. It says explicit. I labeled it as that in Spotify. What are you even doing here? Turn it off now or don't. Right I'm now. Just a voice, not a cop. Yeah, you're fine. All right. So I guess my media that never was has, I have three different ones. I think everybody and their brother wishes that they'd seen Tim Burton's Superman Lives with Nicolas Cage as Superman. Uh, there's that whole documentary out there, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, that's just going into all the details about that. So it's just interesting that something like that existed, and obviously Nicolas Cage always wanted to play Superman in live action, so I think there's that... He's like purchased a copy of Action Comics that was ridiculously expensive, uh, his last name is based on Luke Cage. We know he's a big comics fanatic, so I think that would have been an interesting project to see. Obviously, bits and pieces of it. I guess I say obviously, but there's bits and pieces of it that made it into other movies, like the big mechanical spider was supposed to be the third act thing that happened there that ended up in Wild Wild West somehow instead. Anyway, it just it sounded absolutely bonkers. I don't, for the life of me, think it probably would have been good, but I still would have been curious to see what it ended up being like. So there's that one. The next one is uh, there There was a Dark Tower movie, but for those of you who have read the Dark Tower series and love it, that movie is dead to us. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> and there's a bunch of different iterations that it had during the production cycle and on top of that, too, there was a pilot made for a TV show not long after the movie came out that never saw air. And I would really love to see that episode someday, even if it's absolutely terrible and it makes sense that it was passed on. I still would like to at least see what that first episode of that show ended up being like. Um, so that's another one. And then the last one is Dead Space 3, because Dead Space 3 in production was going to be quite a bit different. For anyone that's ended up playing Dead Space 3, it's the only installment in the series that was multiplayer because you could play two people. Uh, we'll put in a little plug for Chicken Chaser 89. I believe that uh, me and Matt's playthrough of it is available on YouTube to watch, correct? Yes, it is. So anyway, there's that. And uh, But originally what they were going to do with it, it was going to lean harder into its horror roots and the two-player format was going to go with this idea that the second player is actually playing a dark, internal-in-his-head version of uh, Isaac. And so it was going to be like his internal monologue that you were playing against, and that was going to be revealed that happened later. And you can kind of see some elements of that in the finished game, because when you, whenever you're doing single-player or multiplayer, the cutscenes will always have the military character that they added in, whose name escapes me at the moment, but then he'll just kind of disappear at the end of the cutscene, he'll like walk off in a direction and then he'll just be gone, especially if you're playing solo, you see that. And uh, but it makes more sense in the original intent for what Dead Space 3 was going to be, because then it's just something that's in your head. And since they've always dealt with the idea of Isaac seeing people and things that are in his head anyway, then why not have that for the whole second player? And I think that would have made for a much better game and something more in keeping with the tone of the other game. So I always wish that I could see what that game would have ended up being like. I would add to that that my favorite element of that game, not to dive too deep into it, was that I was, as the second player, was seeing things differently than what the first player was seeing them. So diving deeper into that would have been really cool. I agree. That would have been really cool. Uh, what could have been? I'm going to add to my list also. Um, so there was uh, 
Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to make a movie, a horror movie. Uh, I don't know what it was supposed to be called, but it was about this. It was like a true crime, true crime story about this guy called Billy Milligan, who had like 21 personalities or something. And it was supposed to be filmed in the town and take place partially in the town that I used to live in. But that never happened. It made me, made me makes me sad. So I don't know if there's, they scrapped that idea or I don't know. Interesting. Do we give you enough time, Brianna? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm just over here being indecisive, but I do have an answer, I think. So, hearkening back to season one, um, I believe that we mentioned the director's cut of Event Horizon. And if I remember correctly, that footage was lost or destroyed and is no longer available, except for maybe possibly on VHS. It is rumored. I think that's something that I would love to see because I think that prior to whatever edits were made for the theatrical release of the film, like it was far gorier, far, I don't know, more horror, I guess, if you could make it more horror. And I'd be really interested in seeing that, um, you know, where the directors and writers and actors went with all that. That would kind of thrill me to death, honestly. I'm really big into movies in general. That's why I'm on this podcast, um, including like silent films. And there is a movie called Hollywood that was made in 1923. Um, it had like this ridiculous all-star cast of the time. Like, I think it had like, oh my gosh, what's her name? Uh, Gloria Swanson. Um, it had Charlie Chaplin in it and like Cecil B. DeMille, just like all-star cast. And it apparently there were posters or like um, promos found for it, but there was never any footage found. So I would, because I'm such a huge nerd, nerd with vintage films, I would love to be able to see that. And the other thing is, uh, for talking books, I mean, the Library of Alexandria on the whole still depresses me, just saying. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, right? Like, I think about it and I get real freaking sad because I can only imagine what was lost in that and all the knowledge and information and stories that we don't have access to anymore. Uh, And I think the last thing, and maybe this is, maybe this will happen. So let's keep our fingers crossed. I feel like at one point in time in the past three to four years, there was rumors of a remake of The Crow floating around like it has been for the past like 30 years. But this was supposed to maybe include, I, I think it was either, maybe Jason Momoa was the first choice I remember. And then something happened with that. But then they were going to cast Bill Skarsgård. And I'll pretty much, I will watch Bill Skarsgård read a phone book in a phone booth <laughs> like 20 miles away from me. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it would be excellent. Mm-hmm. So those are mine. Nice. Well, that was a lot of good stuff. And yeah, thanks for joining us uh, in the corner. And we'll get on with the episode. So before we start talking about the movie itself, to say that this is the close of the first week of the first annual Is It Horror Movie Marathon. So this week was Classic Cult Week featuring movies, horror films about cults. And so we're rounding it out with Hot Fuzz. If you haven't seen it before, then there's big old spoiler warning for things that are coming. And uh, we'll just get into it. So Hot Fuzz was released in 2007. It was directed by Edgar Wright, who had previously directed the two seasons of Spaced, and at that point, Shaun of the Dead, he went on to direct uh, The World's End, which is the third installment in the Cornetto trilogy, Hot Fuzz being the second, Shaun of the Dead being the first. And then, of course, he's directed other movies like Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Last Night in Soho. And then he co-wrote this movie 
as well as the other Cornetto trilogy movies with Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg himself also worked as a writer on Spaced, as, and more recently uh, he wrote Star Trek Beyond. And then, of course, everyone knows him from his acting, so he's been Scotty in Star Trek, he's been in the Mission Impossible series since the third installment, and honestly, various other movies, plenty of other stuff. Um, I'll give you the back-of-the-box description for Hot Fuzz. This is literally what it says on the back of my Blu-ray, which is when top London cop PC Nicholas Angel, played by Simon Pegg, is reassigned to a quiet town of Sanford, he struggles with his seemingly crime-free world and oafish partner Danny, played by Nick Frost. When several grisly accidents rock the village, it's not long before Danny's dreams of explosive, high-octane, car-crashing, gunfighting, all-out action become reality. It's time for these small-town cops to hand out big city justice. And so, again, there's a spoiler warning, and uh, we'll get a little bit into just the intent of the creators and the reception, and then we'll do kind of our roundtable on whether or not we believe that's horror. There weren't really a lot of quotes that I could find. Normally, there's usually something about the director or the writer commenting on the genre of the film, but what you come across most of the time is both Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, so so accepting of the idea that this is a action homage that there's not really any need to talk in depth about the genre of it always talking about their inspirations like bad boys 2 and point break which the movie wears right on its sleeve by even showing you the scenes that they're playing off of so there's no question on that Uh, but on the other side of it uh, watching the commentary track for the film, they mention plenty of horror films and horror inspirations and making sequences. They talk about referencing The Omen. Uh, they talk about referencing The Wicker Man. They talk about uh, the Italian giallo genre and that having a lot of inspiration on them too. And then on top of all of that, uh, they even have a couple Shining references in the movie, or at least one that I can think of anyway, when he first gets to the hotel. So... While they're definitely looking as an action film, they're also definitely taking inspiration from a lot of horror films. So at least as far as the intent, there's that side of it. As far as the general reception of the film, uh, just to break it down by the meta tag. So this is basically anywhere that you have seen um, it labeled in streaming services and various film sites. And I found about nine that labeled it as action, eight that labeled it as comedy, three that labeled it as adventure, Two that labeled it as mystery or suspense, and one that labeled it as drama, crime, or thriller, but could not find any that labeled it horror. And then as far as other just reception side of things, uh, most horror movies, they usually have a bump in searches around October, but looking at Google search trends, you don't have any sort of bump like that for Hot Fuzz, so it's it's not getting the October bump. And uh, when you just search is Hot Fuzz Horror, there's a couple websites that have some information on the first page of Google, but uh, nothing super definitive. So at least that's what we're looking at as far as intent and reception. How does everyone weigh in here? Hot Fuzz, is it horror? Well, you said that there were zero results that labeled this horror. Was that, did I hear that correctly? Correct. That's because they're right. This is this is not horror, like at all. This is, spoiler alert, a buddy cop film. And there's a happy ending. Shazam. I struggled with this one because I do think that it is a buddy cop film. Uh, when we originally 
recorded this episode way back when, I ended up voting with it being horror because uh, at the time we were kind of leaning a little more into the concept of, you know, you describe a movie in three genres. Can one of, if one of those can be horror, then you could call it a horror movie. I think our definitions have kind of evolved over the time, over time, and we don't lean on that quite as heavy as we, or at least as heavy as I used to. So I think it has a a lot of horror uh, inspiration, and I I think there's a lot of horror tone in it, especially Act One and Act Two, minus Act Three. Like I think it is a pretty pretty solid like horror comedy, um, but then with the addition of Act Three, I think that does kind of shift the tone of things quite a bit. So all that being said, I guess I f- I feel like I have to call it not horror. I'm gonna say not horror, but I do think it has the most horror bones in a non-horror film that I can think of offhand, so I'll go into that later on. I also think it is not horror. I think it is action comedy. Yeah, um, echoing everything everybody else has said so far, I think that this veers so close in a lot of ways, but uh, it's veers away from horror in enough of the substantive ways that I gotta I gotta say at the end of that it's not horror. So that's where I weigh in too. So it sounds like it's a clean a clean sweep as far as everyone's thoughts on that. All right, well then uh, let's dive into it and let's I guess let's first talk a little bit about the tone and I'm kind of curious to see what aspects of the film set the tone for you. Um, I think the tone was mostly set for me by the interaction between who I consider to be the two main characters, which would of course be Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. It's very lighthearted and tongue-in-cheek from the very get-go. We see like these flashing montages of, of um, is it Nick Angel? Is that right? Uh, no. Yes, yes. Nicholas Angel. <laughs> so we see like this montage of him being this super awesome cop in the city and, you know, Mr. Drew Wright and super duper dotting the I's, crossing the T's and, you know, sending him just the situation itself is humorous. You know, we sent him to this tiny little town just because his boss is like, you're doing too well of a job. Get the hell out. Like, I don't know. I think that kind of set the tone in addition to, like I said, you know, the buddy cops, as I said. Yeah, I I think along with that, for me, like there are a lot of like, still there's like underlying tones that like set, or at least for me, like it was kind of like setting me on edge a little bit. The one scene that I am thinking of is, and I don't know, sorry, I'll just get into it. Like the, like when he's traveling to Sanford and like there's a bunch of like quick cuts, like he's taking a train then he's waiting in a train station then a train blows past him and like wakes him up and it's very like kind of sharp jarring moments the like sound design is kind of downbeat but a little kind of creepy i don't know there's still like that horror tone from the from sort of the beginning like but it's mixed in with all that comedy stuff like you were saying like with that with that buddy cop and the all the comedy of that so anyways, I don't know. I think there is a lot of horror tones still there. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Um, there, All the quick cuts, it 
the beginning of the film almost feels like it could be the beginning of any genre of film in a way because it's almost like watching the first few scenes of like Halloween or the first few scenes of any horror movie where everybody's all happy and or like it's not like giving a clear tone just yet you're just kind of like waiting like what's gonna what's gonna be what's what's the what's this gonna be like but i do think that it gets like comedic enough that any of those sort of quick cuts or like quote-unquote jump scare kind of moments in the film are softened to the point that it no longer is horror but it has a lot of those same aspects as other horror films yeah i got like this it was almost the humor was almost young frankenstein in terms of how they address the spookier elements like you know it's supposed to be spooky but it's still highly amusing and exaggerated yeah for sure so i guess we've seen a lot of um you know, we've seen a lot of horror comedies and we've talked about some horror comedies. And of course, the first installment of the Cornetto trilogy is Shaun of the Dead, which is, I think we all agreed was a horror comedy. So what makes this film different from any of those? Because we have those horror elements, we have some comedic elements, we have some rising tension and then lowering of tension. Why does this one feel different? Mostly, I think, because the good guys win and all is well. I mean, objectively speaking. I also think that it's Danny Butterman, right? <laughs> and yes. uh, and Nicholas Angel, they feel invincible, right? So I think that adds a little bit to it for me that they they feel like this invincible stopping or um this invincible force and obviously there's all the references to bad boys too and and point break and so it kind of is beating into your head that this is a cop film, cop film, cop film, not horror. So I feel like that is what makes it different from Shaun of the Dead. There's no supernatural force. There's not really any danger to the main characters, to the two main characters. Yeah, I mean, if the cult had wind, wound up sacrificing them both in this horribly gory scene and then everything goes back to normal as far as the town's normal exists, then it would be a horror movie. You could convince me that. I honestly think how prevalent violence is makes a difference for me in whether or not it's horror. Because in Shaun of the Dead, I mean, there's gore, there's blood, there's limb, severed limbs, there's people getting hurt or killed whether it's a zombie or a a human constantly throughout the film where in this film there are those gory moments there are those violent like horror moments a few of them but it's it's overshadowed by like the plot line of them trying to solve this mystery or angel trying to solve this mystery so for me i guess violence and horrific imagery was a lot more prevalent in Shaun of the dead which makes it lean towards horror more for me than this one. Yeah, and the gore also in Hot Fuzz is, I think I can safely say the gore is like almost 100% comedic most of the times. Like, oh, yeah. Like, 
especially when like the steeple falls on the reporter's head it's like this Mm -hmm. way over the top like if you saw that in a horror movie you'd be like holy shit but like the exact same image in this film i was just like wow that's nuts (laughs) so it's like whereas Shaun of the dead the gore there mostly is making you feel something it's making you feel gross and scared and vulnerable and the score is making you laugh you don't think that the gore in say Shaun of the dead was used for comedic effect when it happens i think sometimes it is but some but i think there's a lot of times where it's not like when what's his face gets ripped apart pulling out getting pulled out of the bar uh or you know when uh i can't remember the name of the character when nick frost's character gets bit like that's not a comedic moment you know yeah i think we all agreed that there seemed to be higher stakes in terms of the characters for Shaun of the dead like there were those couple key moments like you mentioned where you're really invested and you're like no don't go it's very dramatic and i think that uh with this movie it was just everything was just very very funny like i think one of my favorite scenes is when they when there's the the car wreck and they do the wide shot of like the car and the street and the head and the blood and there's that i think there's is it the sheriff or whatever who's standing there with like his hands on his hips just like yep all in a day's work like that's hilarious (laughs) question for all of you i guess just thinking about all that and like the idea that because our our main characters feel uh, less vulnerable than in other movies, then that leans it away from horror. I I agree with that. Um, but then like towards the one of the things that I kind of was like, oh, this is a this is a horror trope was that like Danny gets shot at the end, and like at least for a minute, you're meant to think that he died. I mean, obviously he didn't, and I think that does ma- make a difference. Um, but if he had gotten shot and died at the end. Would how much of that would have like would that have changed any of your opinions of it like ending on that downbeat? I don't think so because that's also characteristic of your cop film, your that's drama true. action. I think it would need to end on a downbeat, but then it would also have to have the spooky end factor. So like if um. Oh, his name just went out of my head. Edgar Wright's character. If he would like, okay, so if Simon Pegg, come with me on this one. So if Simon Pegg got shot, like trying to take care of the whole cult situation and save the day, and then Edgar Wright has to come and kill his father who shot Simon Pegg, and then Edgar Wright's character has to become like the leader of the cult because it's a family succession and he doesn't know and there's this curse, then it could be. But like it needs a downbeat and a little extra spice. I do have to, I have to correct you, Brianna. I have to correct you. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Sorry. What did I do? It's Nick Frost that plays Danny Butterman. Edgar Wright directed it, but Nick Frost is the, the, play, the character playing, op- or the actor playing opposite to Simon Pegg. So anyway, that's all. Nick Fro- Okay. You know who I'm talking about. The guy and the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew, but I thought I would just. I appreciate that. Thank you for the correction, because half the time I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But yeah, that that makes sense what you're saying. Like, uh, I I would agree with that. Like, it kind of has to, it's not quite enough. But if some of those things you said, Brianna, had happened, then then that would lean more horror. 
if all of the movie was different and the things that happened in it were different, then yes, it would be horror. <laughs> Precisely. This is turning into a Jurassic Park episode. <laughs> Here's what I think could make it horror. If Simon Pegg was just a regular guy who moved to this town, not a cop, and has no, like, no reason to be looking into this stuff, but he's looking into it anyway, and f- discovers this cult, then I think it could be horror. I don't know. Yeah. Just a, just a unbaked thought. Um, I, I know we've talked a little bit before about how the huge police presence in a movie kind of takes away from the horror feel of something and i think that kind of touches on what mitz was saying that because it's cops because it's like police procedural in a lot of ways even though it's funny it takes away from it being horror for me yeah this just isn't a like a gritty dark drama uh, cop drama like that would be more seven ish but i'm willing to argue that that's horror but yeah, I agree with you, Matt, like 100%. So I guess that's it's an interesting kind of thought process on it, too, is the idea of police as the main protagonist making it feel like it's not horror. I'm trying to think, because obviously that can exist, and this is, if it is horror, it's horror comedy. If Hot Fuzz is horror, it's horror comedy. So I think that you can obviously have a horror movie with police as protagonist. I do feel like that sort of movie exists. I think at least for me anyway, I guess I would look at seven and probably say it without examining it. And that's something we'll perhaps revisit here, but uh, without, you know, examining it, I would, my gut reaction is to say that is horror. So I don't think that it's impossible to have something that's horror comedy with police as the main protagonist within it. Um, but I agree that it, like we've talked about before, like Matt even said, you know, it's, I think it is harder to kind of pull that off, especially with this instance where um, these characters do feel a bit invincible. So it's a little bit harder to build tension around them or re- at least around your concern for them. I think I know why the police thing is such a barrier for me. I think it's because. When I think of a quintessential horror movie, I think of the victim and then the scary thing, whatever you want it, the murderer, the monster, the villain, the victim and the villain. And in those quintessential movies, the victims just live in life and the villain is pursuing, right? Pursuing victims. Whereas in a police movie, it's kind of the other way around. This cult did not want to be found out. And I I think there's exceptions to this theory, but like he's going out of his way to pursue the danger, to pursue the scary thing. Whereas in most horror movies, it's the opposite. You're trying to avoid, you're running from the zombies in Shaun of the Dead or trying not to be killed by them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the difference between Dracula and Van Helsing. So at least one of the things I saw in terms of this film, trying to look at various horror tropes that show up here, and one of them is the slasher trope, which the more, I guess, obvious elements of that is you have the killer who's running around in a black cloak, and honestly, minus the mask, looks pretty ghost face-like, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the other side that you get with the slasher trope is that normally you have the final girl that is being chased by whatever the threat is and they usually have some sort of reveal early on that 
this thing exists and most people don't believe them and she'll usually take it to the police and they don't believe them. So I think in a way, if you look at the formula of hot fuzz, it does kind of gender flip that and tweak it a little bit by saying, let's have the final girl be a final guy and let's actually have them be a police officer, but they are still going to be on to the slasher early slasher earlier in the film. And it's their fellow police officers in this case that aren't listening, that don't believe them. So I guess I was just thinking about like, yeah, you you do have the slasher trope there. And yes, you do have the police that are hunting them. But it's a little bit like if you took an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and had her be the one that found out about it. Yes, you've got someone in a position of power, someone who's able to do something about it and someone who's actively hunting for the danger. But uh, I guess I was curious how that makes it. If you're looking at it through that slasher trope lens if that makes it feel any different. The other thing I thought about along with that is like, I, I guess I feel like that ties into that is like, there's a moment where like the main character's sanity is questioned a little bit. You know, he feels like he's going crazy and that feels like that is a part that ties into that too. Like when you have the final girl and nobody's listening to her and everybody's like, Oh, she's just crazy or whatever. And that definitely happens in this as well. Mm. I guess obviously while people are mulling that over, I will throw out there too that in the Terminator episode, we basically came to the conclusion, yeah, you can have a movie built around the slasher framework and still come out the other side saying it's not horror. And I think in some ways, this mm. probably has some of that connective tissue between Terminator and Hot Fuzz. But anyway, what do you guys all think? For me, it still all comes down to the tone kind of before and after around all those scenes that are like slasher scenes and how even the gore in those slasher scenes is semi-comedic in nature. That's what just clearly sets it apart, even though, you know, like you said, it almost is like a ghost face killer kind of situation, but... It's just funny when that, whenever that whenever that killer's on screen, it's comedic. I think. Yeah, because it's a parody almost. Yeah. Well, I still think it's not horror, but I'm trying to like get to the root of why I feel that it's not. <laughs> I think at least dealing with the concept of tone for this movie, I think everybody's kind of hit on this point at least once. But I agree that if you if you turned this movie off at the end of the second act, beginning of the third act. You know, Danny's just fake stabbed Nicholas Angel and told him that he needs to leave and there and Nick is driving off. If if you ended the movie there, then I could feel like it, but then just the last act is so high octane action movie tropes and then suddenly you have the gore being drastically toned down. Everyone's getting like I mean, there's still obviously people being shot, but now you're not dealing so much with the over-the-top gore, with the exception of um, Timothy Dalton getting a spire through the jaw. But otherwise, everybody's getting <laughs> getting shot in the shoulder, or they're getting knocked out by flower pots, and the damage is minimal. Our main characters get shot a few times, but they're fine. They're shrugging it off. So it's just, I think it finishes so strong in the action category with 
very little horror bona fide stirring that third act that it completely takes me away from the horror elements earlier in the film. So by the time, you know, the credits roll, I'm just thinking, what a fun action movie. So I think that's a lot of it for me is it's that third act tone shift. Also, side note, the spire through the jaw is one of my favorite moments in that whole film. It really made me go, <laughs> ew. This really hurts. <laughs> this really hurts. That's like one of the only kind of cringe sort of gore moments in the film. Yeah. But then it, But then it's lightened by him saying that line, right? <laughs> right. I think you've really hit on the gore factor, like in, in terms of how I interpret it. If it doesn't make me cringe a little bit, it's just not horror. I think for me, like like you said, Steve, like that tonal shift from act two to act three, that and the fact that looking into Simon Pegg's and Edgar Wright's intentions going into it and them not really even talking about horror being their intention, those are the two things that I think clench it for me as not being horror. So I think we've touched on the gore element of this movie quite a bit already, so I don't necessarily want to rehash that, but at least as far as, uh, I guess it kind of in my head I look at it as taboos, social trespass, things that you don't generally see on a day-to-day basis, things that aren't supposed to happen in society. In looking at this film, I think the other thing that comes up is the idea of children deaths, because you don't see any children that are killed on screen, but the implication is that they were killed by this cult off screen. Someone murdered them and dump the bodies. And you see those bodies later during, you know, the reveal of the NWA and what they've been up to. So we've got a bunch of kids being killed in this man, you know, mind you, they're likely teenagers. So I guess, how did that impact the way that you saw this film? I think that was a very horror scene when he's like running through the graveyard and seeing all the people who've been murdered, especially the children and the dog. They killed a dog. Yeah. Rude. (laughs) Um, but yeah i think that's a very horror scene yeah that could have been a turning point oh you're right that could have changed the whole film if had they gone a different way in that scene alone Mm -hmm. i guess for me anyway just because a lot of those death reveals are played for laughs it kind of didn't really have a huge impact on me as far as the tone goes but still, like, I think about, you know, the implications of that. And I think you get that with any movie where you have to sit there and think to yourself, okay, what, what, how did that actually function, right? Because he brought all those kids in to the police station that first night. And uh, when you see them again, they're wearing what they were wearing at the police station. So he dropped them off that night. He went back to his apartment. And then while Danny was sleeping it off in the cell, someone from the NWA came and murdered those kids and then took their bodies and put them in that cavern in the ground. Like, obviously, that doesn't happen in the movie because if they do, it changes the tone entirely. But you have to sort of, I don't know, think about it or acknowledge it a little bit, the logistics there. Yeah, so he was went home slept in his bed while someone was murdering those kids in a nebulous way. It's not explained how exactly were they shot, were they stabbed. Um, They seem to like to stab people. They seem to like to incur slasher movie deaths. They don't mind being excessively violent. And then where did these kids' parents come from? Did they ever show back up to ask, why did our kid go missing? Did they kill the parents too? Like, what happened? There's not even talk of missing children. Like, if there was a kid that's missing in a town that small... That would be a huge deal, and it's never brought up. 
And especially when you know everybody's parents. <laughs> you just know everybody. Right. But what if the parents have to choose a child every few whatever, like, lottery style? Like, straight up <laughs> Shirley Jackson. Oh. See, we could do such good read rights. Like, why is someone not greenlighting this for us? <laughs> I think that's the thing about that scene, too, is, like, as he's running through the, like, catacombs of the graveyard there, just how many bodies there are there. Yeah, how does that all happen? Like without like raising any flags it's kind of crazy they probably killed the parents yeah maybe they did right maybe they killed the parents too (laughs) okay well i wanted to also kind of look at do you feel like because normally with a horror movie you have at least some form of tension building throughout the film and obviously one of the things that's going to undercut that as we've already talked about is the characters do feel somewhat invincible so i guess what do you feel were the most tense scenes in the film? Do you think that the film spends any time tension building throughout? I think one of the tensest scenes for me is like when he, when he like goes to the graveyard, confronts the NWA. And I mean, you're sitting there thinking he's confronting this entire group of people. Like what's he thinking? It's not like he can actually arrest all these people. Uh, But then like, when the chief shows up and then just like the floor is like taken out from under him. Uh, that's, that's one of those big, like, I don't know, heart dropping moments, I guess, at least for the character. So that's one of the bigger tense moments, I guess, for me. And when he gets stabbed by Danny. Well, for me, the most tense scene is the graveyard scene. That's when it kind of, it rides that line of horror for me not just the graves themselves when he sees the people but also just like the idea of the entire town being in on this nefarious scheme is very i mean it's funny in the movie but if you would think of that happening in in actual in actuality it's actually really scary to think about so for me that's the most tense scene and i guess they build that up from the moment he gets to the town with just the little strange behaviors of the people in town. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Like, I think the tense, like they build, they're building tension through most of act one and two up to that graveyard scene. And then it's downhill from there. But I do think that it is building in the background that whole time. I agree with that. There is like this overtone sense of like, it's very ominous, even though it's comedic. Um, So I think they did a really good job of building the tension throughout, you know, the first and second acts, like you said. I I do actually think that the film spends a lot of time. It does feel like they spend the first maybe hour or more building tension because there's all the little like like we talked about the quick cuts and the the sort of jump scare moments where it doesn't pay off with something that's actually scary or dangerous. And then like the little comments of, I don't know the actor's name, but the guy who owns the supermarket where he's like saying all those like clearly nefarious lines to Nick Angel. <laughs> Lock me up, I'm a slasher. Crisis. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) So, like, it is building up tension in that way, but it's all, like, building it into a comedic way, 
almost like it it's like scooby-doo yeah yeah it's like if if it was a horror movie it would build that tension and then scare you a little bit or do nothing but what this movie does is it builds the tension and then makes you laugh so that's why i would say not horror still but it's where i'm at i think that's a good point too in thinking about it is a lot of i mean horror movies and horror comedies not being an exception they're spending time building towards a scare most of the time. And then, you know, if it's a horror comedy, then it drops back down after that. But uh, I think what you end up with this movie is that it's usually building towards a joke or it's building towards an action sequence. And so maybe that's what it is. Like, yeah, there's tension, but it's not most of the time horror movie tension because of what the payoff of that tension ends up being. Yeah, I think it all goes back to what you said about our two main characters having that feeling of invincibility throughout the whole thing. Like, they're untouchable. Also, I really kind of like how... I don't... I I think they did this intentionally. I don't see how it wouldn't be. But they built the tension through the characters' names. Because you have all these, like, these townies who... I mean, their last names are Reaper, Skinner, Shooter. Those are all the people that turn in the end. And then you've got Tim Messenger, the journalist who gets killed because he's delivering the message of the value of the land. So even though it's subtle, it is kind of a cool way that they built tension. I didn't even realize that everyone's last name was like a, a trade, right? Like something they did for a living. either a trade or something like, like you know, Skinner, <laughs> right, right, Reaper, the yeah. I didn't really oh notice. My God. Until I didn't they even said, put that together until you said it. That's so funny. The um the uh, I didn't notice until they said the what was he the priest's name was Shooter. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, there's a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> they do have a lot of fun with names. I'm looking at Wikipedia now, but George Merchant was the name of the guy who was developing the land, like sales. Just very literal, <laughs> symbolic names. P.I. Staker. Piss Taker. Come on. <laughs> and A.A. A. Aronson. That was a good one. The payoff for that joke is so good. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so far back and then <laughs> just love it. Aaron A. Aronson, sir. God bless subtitles. <laughs> so many things would be lost on me without them. I guess one of the other things I saw too, as far as tropes that get used from horror that I guess I thought was worth mentioning, at least wanted to make sure to bring up before we would bring this episode to a close at all, but is uh, just that at least I've seen some people kind of reference the idea that hot fuzz echoes other folk horror. And so that would be things in the vein of uh, Wicker Man particularly, but things like Midsummer as well and, and stuff like that, dealing with small town cults. And so Wicker Man, that was one that they specifically, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, pointed out as far as one of their, you know, inspirations for this. Because in that movie, you have a big city cop who comes to a small town and everything seems somewhat normal, but it's a little bit off. And then what you end up with is uh, you've got this Christian cop who's ultimately put up against this pagan cult in this town that's influenced the entire town. 
And so it's kind of interesting how the backbone of this movie does the opposite in a way. I mean, it's still this cop coming to the small town, but you've got this cop who's played as being agnostic, who is dealing with an overtly Christian cult. Because while it's not to say that it's a Christian cult per se, like it is one of the members is their Christian priest at the center of the town. And uh, so it's just kind of interesting that sort of taking that and tweaking it a little bit. And then you even go so far as to have Edward Woodward is the name of the actor that plays the police NWA liaison. And he is the cop in the original Wicker Man, Sergeant Neil Howie. So I thought that was a fun kind of callback as well. That is cool. I actually haven't seen the Wicker Man, um, but it's interesting how how it plays with that, and especially that they use the same person. Just don't watch the Nicolas Cage version, please. Spare yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's see. I guess we've pretty much covered everything that I was thinking of in terms of this, but is there anything else that I guess people wanted to bring up and talk about in terms of this film and just things they noticed, whether it had to do with whether it was horror or not. The killer in the back seat, the goose who pops up in the rear view mirror. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good scene. <laughs> I love the goose. There actually are like a ton of, I feel like it's a horror trope that having that happen. So but there are goose. actually, yeah, but it was, a, it's a goose, but there's always like somebody popping up in the back seat in horror films. Yeah, and that's so like I had always kind of like back from when we originally did our first recording of this, like I'd always kind of thought about that and I'd brought it up to Steve and we were talking about it the other night. Um and he had mentioned that he also thinks it's a comedy trope, especially with like especially with animals, I guess, like an yeah. animal like popping up in the back seat. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that could go both ways, I guess. We did end up looking it up a little bit because we were kind of curious what happened first as far as it as a horror trope or a comedy trope. And at least we could find the urban legend of the killer in the backseat was back to the 50s, I want to say. Yeah. But then, yeah, you mentioned like, I don't know if we ever remembered exactly which one it was, but like uh, Black Sheep or uh, Tommy Boy or whatever one, where like the deer pops up in the back and it's all played for laughs. I feel like unexpected wild animal is it's a comedy trope agreed strongly especially when it's a bird come on <laughs> hey geese are terrifying they are, they are. I'm just uh, i feel like i would win the fight i'm just saying that fight happened in real life strong yeah i would be terrified but it's not the same as a guy with the knife yeah like trapped in a car with a goose that's attacking you like that's pretty terrifying just oh, yeah. <laughs> that's like that's jurassic park being stuck in the car with the dilophosaurus i would go straight up lighthouse on that bird don't fuck with me <laughs> it's cursed so so you so you're saying that because it's a goose it negates the like killer in the backseat kind of trope and becomes just a comedy trope because it's an animal in the backseat. I guess that's yes. where I leaned in on it, yeah. Does the okay. goose have a knife? <laughs> <laughs> or a hook for a wing. A hook for a wing? Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. <laughs> the goose having a knife in its beak probably would have fit into this film, honestly. So, Honestly. 
I wouldn't question it. Any other thoughts on this film? Really funny. Ten stars. Definitely not horror. I think it was funnier than Shaun of the Dead. Don't crucify me. What? What? For me, it tickled my humor more than that. I I do think, actually, I think it is funnier because I think Shaun of the Dead does lay on the, like, feels and it's a little heavier of a film. It's still funny in one of my favorite movies, but this one is much more of a comedy, I would agree. Okay, this is more lighthearted, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd agree with that, too. And I will say, I don't laugh out loud as much at American humor as much as I do at British humor. I mean, it gets me. It's... (laughs) Gets me good. We gotta watch Spaced soon. We should. It's a good one. Uh, I guess the other thing I was just thinking about, too, in terms of the feels thing, just because that brought up, is like, yeah, you do have people die in Shaun of the Dead, but it does mean something. Whereas uh, everybody shrugs off every death that happens in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um... Unless there are any other thoughts, I guess I will play us out, so to speak. Do your thing, honey. All right. Well, so next week, the theme for the continued Is It Horror first annual horror movie marathon is Feminist Horror Week, which was selected by Brianna. And we are for next Friday's episode going to be talking about The Descent. And so you can join us back here for that. Um, but, uh, thanks for joining us this time and hope you enjoyed our talking about hot fuzz, a episode that was a year in the making and, uh, we'll see you back here next week. I have been Steve. And I'm Brianna. And I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I'm Mitz. Don't get goosed. (laughs) (laughs) Or do. Or do, you know, whatever. (laughs) Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Is It Horror Pod, or you can email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself Is It Horror?